Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 41, picking up where we left off. Basically, uh, if you remember the story in the chapter in we're in right now, Pharaoh had some dreams. They, they were disturbing dreams. He uh, finds out that maybe there's this guy in prison, a Hebrew, that might be able to interpret the dreams. He calls for Joseph. Joseph comes to tell Pharaoh, I can't do it, but God can. And uh, isn't, that the, isn't that the situation in our lives? I mean, so many times that would be the answer to just just so many different situations. I can't do it, but God can. So uh, Joseph is able to provide the interpretations, and then he provides some some advice that wasn't even asked for, and it was the advice that you find that Pharaoh says, hey, you know what? I like what I'm hearing, and I can't think of anybody that meets the qualifications that you've laid out as well as I'm sure you would, and so Pharaoh promotes Joseph. So we're in the middle of that promotion going on, and we're in verse 40 right now. Somebody mind reading verse 40. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So here we have the promotion of Joseph. Pharaoh is appointing or promoting Joseph over his entire house. Have we seen this, this pattern yet in Joseph's life anywhere else? Yes. Where else have we seen this happen? There it is, Potiphar. Potiphar put Joseph in charge. Remember Potiphar, captain of the of the guard, and he put Joseph in charge of his entire house. And then, you remember the situation, Joseph gets thrown into prison. But does Joseph stay just a, an inmate that nobody knows about, or what happened to Joseph in prison? He was well known. He was promoted in the prison. He was put in charge of the prison. So he's been in charge, and then he's thrown into prison, and then he becomes in charge in the prison. And, and now we see him in charge of Pharaoh's house. J. Vernon McGee says this regarding this verse. He says, Now don't you see how God had been training him in the home of Potiphar? We may wonder why in the world God ever let him go into that home in the first place. Now we realize that he had received quite a bit of training in the home of Potiphar, where he had charge of everything the man owned. Now he is going to have charge of everything in the land of Egypt. In fact, uh, Victor B. Hamilton says... That Joseph has gone from Potiphar's house to the jailhouse to Pharaoh's house. He's been in charge in all three situations. Everywhere that we've been watching him go, uh, he is recognized for his skill. He's recognized for his aptitude. He's uh, put in charge. And this reminds me of a passage in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. It says, do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. Do you see someone skilled in their work? What would this say to us? I'd say, uh, I'd suggest you seat of application, the first one that you have there, continue to improve your skills. All right, obviously, though, that proverb is uh, talking about vocational skills, and I'm not going to exclude that, but I'm just not going to limit it to vocational skills only. So continue to improve your skills, absolutely. Vocationally, you know, if you can get better at the job that you do, by all means, go for it. But I think the Bible would also support that we should continue to improve our parental skills. Mm-hmm. 
continue to improve our spiritual skills, whatever it is that we are set to do, perhaps in looking at ways in doing it better, if we can find ways to do it better and, and bring glory to God, by all means, I think we should. So continue to improve your skills. Verse 41, dropping down to verse 41. Somebody mind reading that one? Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. All the land of Egypt. Did you notice in verse 40? It didn't say anything about all the land. In verse 40, what was the sphere that it was limited to in verse 40? It was over the house of Pharaoh, as if that's not impressive enough. <laughs> and, and here in this verse, it's expanded. The sphere of influence and the sphere of uh, that he's going to be in charge of, it's now all the land of Egypt, not just the palace anymore. I'm reminded of James chapter 4, verse 10. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. In fact, that's the next seat of application that you're filling in there. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And perhaps some people would be thinking, well, that's easy. All I need to do is just humble myself and bam, instantly God's going to wave a magic wand and he's going to raise me up. I think Peter helps us to figure out that it's a little bit more than that. First Peter 5 6 and 7 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, so it starts the same way as James, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. That's kind of an interesting phrase. Under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So now we've got a qualification. It's in due time. It's not your timing. It's God's timing. And number verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, the very next verse says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Wow, that's weird that God, the humbling, the lifting up, is in conjunction with anxiety. We've seen that here in Joseph's life. Where is it in Joseph's life where he's under God's mighty hand and where there might have been anxiety? It's in prison. In prison. When you're going through your tribulation, just as Joseph was going through his, when you're going through your tribulation, all right, that's when you need to be humble. Not shaking your fist at God. God, why are you letting this happen to me? I thought I was one of your favorites. I thought I was going to get all the blessings. And, well, maybe it's not due time yet. Maybe we haven't matured yet to the point where he's saying, this is the due time. This is the right time. I'm going to lift you up. Maybe we haven't humbled ourselves. Mm-hmm. So in our hard times, we need to humble ourselves just as in the grand times as well. Verse 42. Somebody might reading verse 42. Pharaoh took his sickness, rain yep. off his hand, and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So here the Pharaoh is bestowing upon Joseph three things that show as an outward indication of the authority that he's vesting in Joseph. One of the things is the signet ring. This ring back in in these days uh, was probably a scarab ring. I, I've got a sample of one of these right here. So it's a ring that has a, as a, a prominent thing that you would be looking at on the ring is, is like a scarab. It's carved out of stone and that they would be fired uh, with uh, colorings that would result in a greenish or a bluish, often greenish or bluish, uh, scarab-looking thing. And then what would happen is you can see it's kind of fixated in such a way that you could rotate the scarab. So on the back, this is going to be a different ring now, on the back you would have Egyptian hieroglyphics that would serve as the authority of Pharaoh, if not Pharaoh's name himself. So if you had some clay pots or something and you needed to uh, impress upon those and while the clay is still soft that these belong to Pharaoh, you would use the underside, the backside of the ring, to impress the seal of Pharaoh on those or maybe a wax seal on, on a document. Okay, So this is like Pharaoh's signature. It's like Joseph is being given a blank check. It's as if Joseph is being given a company credit card with no limit. Pharaoh's saying, 
whatever you need, whatever resources you need. I, I'm giving you all my authority. He gives the ring, and that's that's what that serves to do. He's also giving him fine garments or garments made out of fine linen. This word here is actually an Egyptian word. We have our Bible, the Old Testament, is written in Hebrew. But here we have an Egyptian word, or at least the word that's specific to Egyptian linen. There's another Hebrew word for linen that's used in other places. But this word that's used here is also used in some other interesting places. One of the other places that it's used, it's used to describe the fabric that was used for crafting the tabernacle and priestly vestments. So the word that's being used here as to what he's dressed in is the same word that's being used to uh, prepare the tabernacle when they made the tabernacle and also what the priests were going to be wearing, their outfits. So it's kind of an interesting word. It's not the normal Hebrew word for linen. And then you've got that gold chain around his neck. So basically, Pharaoh is saying, I'm giving you all the power to ask for anything you want and it'll be done. I'm giving you all of that kind of authority. And with that change of garments, it's kind of interesting. Have you ever talked with somebody who pays a lot of attention to people's clothes? Maybe you're just out to, out to lunch and, and you're sitting there and you're minding your own business. You, you don't even see what's going on. And somebody said, did you see the dress that that lady is wearing? <laughs> or did you, did you see the shoes? That, like, no, I didn't. I don't notice those kinds of things. But somebody, you know, some people do. So if you're paying attention to clothing changes, this is his fifth and final change of clothing, <laughs> in case you're wondering. So um, I, I'm just throwing that out there because quite a few of the commentaries actually made mention of this being significant somehow. They, they didn't know what the significant was, but they found it interesting enough to mention this is his fifth change of clothes that you've got right here uh, regarding the blank check or the or the ring the signet ring that has all that authority and all the unlimited resources backing it it's as if Pharaoh is saying you can ask for anything you can ask for anything and you'll get it I think it's interesting that Jesus himself has this outstanding statement John 14 14 says this words of Jesus you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it isn't that crazy you may ask me for anything and I will do it that your seat of application that you're filling in there is faithful followers of God can ask him for anything in his name and he will do it I want to say, though, that's another one of those passages that oftentimes is misunderstood because people don't think there are any qualifiers. They think, oh, I just need to ask, and bam, it's going to be done for me. Again, like God has a magic wand, and he's going to wave it over in your direction, and just because you ask, you get it. If somebody says, God, I want to win the lottery, does that obligate God then to make it so that you win the lottery? No, I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching. In uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 through 23, it says this, Dear friends, in our hearts, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. Teaches the same thing so far, right? But then the next word in our English translations, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So it's not that it's without parameters. We can't just say, oh, dear God, I want to pay my bills uh, this week, so make me win the lottery, as if we're now obligating God to give us you know, the winnings of a lottery. No, that's not how it works. Verse 43. Somebody mind reading verse 43? <laughs> and he had him ride in the second chariot which he had, and then cried out before him, bow the knee, so he set him over all the land of Egypt. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. The phrase that's translated bow the knee right there, other translations might have make way or bow down, kneel down, or even attention. 
I should point out, though, that um, as the New King James Study Bible says, that the Egyptian people bowed as a sign of respect and homage not to worship Joseph. This, Joseph would not accept somebody's worship. All right, that's not what it is. It's like if somebody, if you're in the military and a general walks in the room, you're going to salute. You're not worshiping the person, you're showing respect. All right, so that's what's going on here by bowing to Joseph as he tears through the streets on a chariot or something like that. So what would I say to this? I'd say, uh, notice this, Joseph serves his earthly masters faithfully. Whether it's Potiphar, whether it's the warden in the jail, or now Pharaoh, we're going to see that he serves them faithfully. He doesn't discriminate in the sense that, I guess nowadays it might be more common to see something like this. But back then, it didn't matter to Joseph. It didn't matter. Daniel was another example of this as well. It didn't matter that you came from a different culture or that you were a different race. Daniel and Joseph both served faithfully, even though the people were different from them, even though they had different worldviews. Even though, let's use our modern language, oh, the guy's not a Christian, so therefore I'm not, I'm not obligated to serve him wholeheartedly. No, the Bible teaches otherwise. The Bible would say you need to serve faithfully, whether or not that person has the same worldview you have. All right? and, and they certainly weren't looking for opportunities to overthrow the government. Right? I mean, Joseph is not under Pharaoh going, if I can just find a way to make this all work out you know, and overtake the, the government, and maybe I'll be in charge. No, he's not scheming. He doesn't have ulterior motives. Daniel, same situation. He was second in, in command in a lot of different uh, for a lot of different dudes, and, and he wasn't ever looking for ways to overthrow the government. Mm-hmm. It seems like nowadays, though, you hear about something like that, and it's not surprising. Mm-hmm. But for Joseph and for Daniel, no, they're, they're examples of being faithful servants. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, Paul says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That's your seat of application right there. Serve your earthly masters with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And then Paul goes on to say, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Joseph served as an example, recognizing that he's serving God. By being faithful in the way he's serving his master, he is showing or demonstrating that he's serving God. Daniel, same situation. He recognized that he's serving God when he's serving his earthly masters, and we need to recognize the same as well. Our service to our earthly masters is a reflection of our service to God. I have to Mm -hmm. say that's kind of what I was thinking, too, when we went through the part-time status when they did that. Okay. I don't know, just thumb or nose that it's like God you knew before this was even gonna happen that we would end up this way and so they didn't give us our professionalism and so they can't take it away and mm-hmm. so just sort of just go and do your job and do it well and um, you know, and I think that that paid off. I think you're right. God honored that. Excellent. Good observation. Verse forty four. Somebody mind reading verse forty four. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. No one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. What is this like? Well, I want you to imagine for a second a drill instructor. All right. A drill instructor greeting his new recruits. And maybe one of the things he might end up saying to them is something like, uh, you maggots, you better not pick your nose or stub your toes without my permission, right? It's kind of like the same kind of authority is basically it's a play on words, all right? Or it's a, um, there's a particular word for it. Where is it? 
Oh, it's a merism. All right, it's a merism, meaning that every activity is under Joseph's purview. Every activity is subject to Joseph's approval. All right. Verse 45, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paaneah, and I'm not even sure I'm saying that right. In fact, I'm almost positive I'm saying it wrong. And he gave him as a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. So we've got a bunch of names here. Verse 45, a bunch of names. Joseph's name is the first one that we run across, Zaphnath Paaneah. And uh, you know what's interesting is the author doesn't seem to find it important to tell us what the name means. Yeah. We don't know what the name means. There's all kinds of debates since then as to what the name might mean. So there's no consensus as to what the name means, but everybody agrees it's an Egyptian name. They have a lot of suggestions. One uh, suggests God speaks and he lives. Another one says, no, it means the God has said he will live. Another one, the man knows things. Another one, the sustainer of life. Another one, sustenance of the land is the living. So you've got all these different suggestions as to what Joseph's Egyptian name means. But when it comes down to it, it's Egyptian. That's all we know. The author didn't think it was very important to tell us. And in fact, as we get further on from here, this is the only place it shows up. Nobody actually refers to him by that name anyway. Uh, So it doesn't seem to make much of a difference in the way that the story unfolds. And then you've got his wife, Asenath. After this chapter, she's never mentioned again. All right, so she also plays a bit role, but you'll see it's more of a role than his name does. Uh, so Asenath, her name actually does have some consensus as to what it means. It means belonging to the goddess Neith. So her name means I belong to the goddess Neith. That's Joseph's wife. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And she is the daughter of the priest of On. And it turns out that On is another name for Heliopolis which is a very well-known Egyptian ancient city. And in fact, the priest family in On, they oversaw the sacrifices that were made not only in that area, but they also supervised lesser priests in the service of the sun god, Ray. And I'm sure you've heard the sun god, Ray, and the worship that had to do with Ray in, in Egypt. So Heliopolis is another name for the place of On, also known as Sun City. It's actually on the Nile River in Lower Egypt, just about seven miles northeast of Cairo. The, the ruins have been found, and they're being studying excavated and in jeremiah chapter 43 verse 13 it's also referred to as beth shemesh or the house of the sun uh, because of the worship of the sun deities there all right Uh, regarding giving him an egyptian name part of the reason for this is because pharaoh is putting joseph in charge of egyptians and so to be readily accepted by egyptians you should probably have an egyptian name all right, so he gives him an Egyptian name to help him to be more readily accepted by the Egyptians that he's going to be in charge of. Mm-hmm. Regarding his marriage to Asenath, she's the daughter of the priest of On, as I mentioned, so that creates a problem for the rabbis. Down through the centuries, they're going, wait a minute, we got one of these patriarchs, right? We've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. Here's one of the 12 sons, it's Joseph. He marries a pagan? The daughter of a pagan priest? Ah, that's awkward, especially when it's the woman who, if you're Jewish, it's because your mom was Jewish, not necessarily dad. All right, it's the woman through whom Jewishness comes. So for the rabbis, they're like, this is this is a little bit of a dilemma because two of his sons, his two sons, are going to eventually be accounted as tribes. All right, Ephraim and Manasseh. So how do you get around that? Are they Jewish or are they not? So some of the rabbis propose, speculate, but it's not biblical that perhaps Asenath is the daughter of Dinah and Shechem. Remember that story? Shechem raped Dinah. And so the rabbis 
imagine that maybe she got pregnant by that. Maybe she has a child, and the child ends up becoming this woman here. I think it's a stretch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's really a stretch. And if it's not a stretch, if it's actually true, he's marrying his niece. So that's kind of strange, too. So I just throwing that out there that the rabbis struggle with this fact that he's actually marrying this Egyptian woman to have these two sons. Verse 46. Somebody mind reading that one? Can I ask a question for Absolutely. You said that Jewishness comes through the mother? Yes. Like in our Western way of thinking, we reckon our heritage mostly from our father. Right, right. But in Jewish way of thinking, it's reckoned through the mother. Mm. Kind of strange, huh? Too, really, right? Yeah, I think so with the, name, with the two last name thing that always creates confusion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so verse 46. Somebody might read that one. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So how old is he? 30. He's 30 years old. Do you remember how old he was when his brothers uh, threw him in the pit and sold him? He was 17. Mm-hmm. So how many years is that? 13. 13. Right. 13 years since he's been sold by his brothers. Since he's been thrown into the pit and his dad thinks he's been dead. And he's actually been in Egypt. So of that time, of those 13 years, he spent a good part of it in Potiphar's house, being in charge there. And then he spent some of that time in prison, at least two years in prison. You remember that we found out in verse 41 or chapter 41, verse 2, that it was two years before Pharaoh's servant says, oh, I remember that guy in prison. He interpreted my dreams. That was two years before. Mm-hmm. So it was at least two years that he was in prison. So he's had a rough 13 years, a rough 13 years, right? Maybe you've got some rough years. It doesn't mean God's done with you yet, though. You might have more than a rough decade, and God might not be done with you yet. He's just starting in Joseph. He's been cultivating in Joseph the person he needs, right? And then here, he's promoting Joseph to be in charge. So those were formative years, even though they were a drag. They were miserable. So 13 years. Uh, If you look at chapter 50, verse 26, it tells how old Joseph was when he died. Somebody mind reading, looking at chapter 50, verse 26. How old was Joseph when he died? He's 30 years old here. 110. 110. How many years? 110 minus 30 is how many? 80. Good job. 80 years. So it looks like 30 years of his life, kind of rough, especially the last 13. But the next 80, he's in charge. God may start with you at a later date than you might be expecting. I have uh, my oldest daughter. She was kidding, but it was funny that she actually said it. She says, I just, I want to be in charge so I can fix things. And we're like, on what level do you want to be in charge? You know, I want to be in charge of this country so I can fix things. And we're like, okay, sweetie. Um, <laughs> that's, that's pretty ambitious. That may not be what God has in mind for you. But the funny thing is, you know, you're not old enough. You're not old enough. Even if you wanted to be the president, you have to be 35. All right, so that uh, that disqualifies you right there. Uh, to be a senator, you have to be 30, which is kind of interesting. You have to be 30 years old to be a senator. Uh, here, Joseph, he's 30 years old before God promotes him to this position of being in charge. Jesus himself was until he was 30 years old to, that he began his public and widespread ministry. So 30 years, That's uh, there's some formative times that you need to go through before you get to the point where God says, all right, you're in charge. <laughs> Verse 47, somebody might reading that. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriela. The ground brought forth abundantly. What does that mean? 
Yeah, good crops. Yeah, grew some good stuff. Exactly right. Successful crops. Is this surprising, or was this predicted? Was this prophesied? Yeah. Who was it that prophesied this? Who said this was going to happen? Good. God said it, and Joseph was the one that interpreted it for Pharaoh's dreams. Exactly right. So this is not a surprise to us. This was prophesied. Joseph said God has already declared this is what's going to happen. So it's fulfilled prophecy. We're beginning to see the fulfillment of prophecy. By the way, the Bible stands apart from every other religious work in the world. And one of the reasons is because of prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. And which is exciting because there's some unfulfilled ones. It just hasn't happened yet. All right, so we're seeing we're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy going on here. I, I want to talk a little bit though about the ground bringing forth abundantly. I mean, how much food do you need to succeed in in what Joseph has already predicted is going to happen? The prophecy was what seven bountiful years, right? Followed by seven years of famine. So we need enough food in these seven years to set aside to get us through those lean years that are coming, right? And if you remember, he actually had a number. He says 20%. So every year that you have this good crop, we're going to take 20% and we're going to put it away. We're going to store it up. And then in those seven lean years, we'll have enough for everything. So I I like math. So I start thinking, okay, Mm -hmm. let's imagine a number. Let's just pick a number out of the air. And let's say you need 10 tons of grain to keep Egypt alive on a given year. Let's just pick a number. You can pick 20, you can pick 50, you can pick 100, you can pick whatever number you want. The math is going to be the same. The ratios are going to be the same. So I'm just picking a number out of thin air. I'm going to say you need 10 tons of grain. Let's say you need 10 tons of grain to keep the people of Egypt alive for one year. So if you have seven great years, seven good years, and and you're setting aside, let's say you have 10 tons of grain each of those seven years, that's 70, 70 tons, right? Because 10 times 7 is 70. Mm-hmm. If you set aside 20% of that, you're setting aside 14 tons. 14 tons, though, if you need 10 tons to keep your population alive for one year, if you need 10 tons a year, 14 is only going to get you less than a year and a half, right? So there's a little problem with the math. So is this even possible? Well, actually, we got to modify our formula because these aren't normal years. These are good years. These are really good years. In fact, you'll remember the prophecy was, these are going to be years that are going to surpass all kinds of other years, right? So all of a sudden you're going, okay, so maybe a normal year would be 10 tons. Mm -hmm. Maybe these are what? Maybe they're 20. Maybe they're 30. How much would you need to get the 10 tons per year to sustain your population? You would need 50 tons per year. You would need five times, a five-fold increase every year for those seven years to give you enough to sustain your population. So like I said, it doesn't matter if we use 10 tons, 50 tons, 100 tons. It doesn't matter what number we use. The ratio is the same. You need five. You need these bumper crop years to be five times better than a normal year. Five times better than a normal year. That's a lot of grain. Can you really get five times more in a given year? We'll have to answer that later. We're going to come back to that. Moving on to verse 48. Somebody might read that one. So he gathered up all the food of the seven uh, years which were in the land of Egypt. He laid up food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So so what I'm reading here, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. It sounds like he's setting up multiple places, right? It sounds like he's setting up multiple places to serve as collection points. And I'm going to guess... These multiple places that serve as collection points are also going to serve as distribution points. Sounds like a pretty good system. 
it sounds like he's setting up multiple places to make it easy to collect what you need to save and easy to distribute what you need to distribute in the in the years of famine. Verse 49, somebody might read that one. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Excellent. Thank you, Levet. So I picture I picture the guy in charge of like keeping track of the numbers of how much grain we've got. You know, and I can picture the guy at some point. He's probably going to Joseph with a complaint. Ah, I, I can't keep up. <laughs> There's so much. I don't know how much we have left anymore. They, they quit measuring it. They started measuring it. They quit measuring it somewhere along the way. There's some poor bean counter going, I don't know. I don't know. There's so much. I don't know. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. I, I should have just stayed a fisherman. <laughs> and so looking at the other things that you've got here, you've got a phrase there as the sand of the sea, and this is hyperbole, but we've also run across this phrase a couple of other times before. Do you remember what it was describing the other times that we've seen it? It's like the sand of the sea. Uh, Generations. Good job. Your generations, your offspring, your descendants that were promised to Abraham and his family by God. Exactly right. Good job. Verses 50 and 51, and to Joseph were born two sons before the years of the famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. And then it says here, For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Sounds like he's had a rough past. Mm-hmm. It sounds like he wants to forget those things. And it sounds like he's interpreting the current blessings of God upon his life right now or helping him to forget those things. What would I say? Seed of application that you've got there. God can cause you to forget your troubled past. God can cause you to forget your troubled past. Just as Joseph is is giving God credit for helping him to forget his troubled past. And then verse 52 talks about the name of the secondborn, and the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Ephraim actually means twice fruitful. It's like I I had one son, that was uh, Manasseh, and now I'm having a second son. God has made me fruitful, now I'm twice fruitful. He names him Ephraim, twice fruitful. Victor P. Hamilton says, In naming his second child Ephraim, he reminds himself that God can turn buffeting into blessing. And then I've got underlined here what is your next seat of application. The place of affliction can become the place of fruitfulness. And I thought that was good enough to make a seat of application there. The place of affliction can become the place of fruitfulness. All right, maybe in your life you're going to go through periods of affliction, trouble. Maybe it would be helpful to remember that Joseph found fruitfulness in the midst of those afflictions. Maybe it would help us to get through our afflictions to recognize that we serve the same God that Joseph did. James Montgomery Boyce says this, The fact that Joseph kept his eyes on God in adversity is remarkable. But even more remarkable is the fact that he kept his eyes on God when he was prosperous. How often promotions ruin people. A man can be a strong witness for God and be wonderfully used by God in the ministry of his local church when he is in some lowly position in his firm. But let him be promoted to vice president and suddenly he has a new image to keep up. He drops his old friends. He moves in with a country club set. And now no longer has time for witnessing Bible study or other Christian activities. And his wife keeps pace with his deprovement. She adopts heirs and now no longer primarily wants her children to be godly. She wants them to meet the right people and marry those who will promote their careers or social advancement. Many Christians have been impoverished by prosperity. Many have been brought low by promotions. Your seat of application for that one. 
Keep your eyes on God, whether in plenty or in want. James Montgomery Boyce goes on to say, The same thing happens to nations, too. And this is one reason why the United States of America has ceased to be a godly nation. America was never truly a Christian nation, of course, but there were years in our history when godly people were numerous and exerted an influence beyond their numbers. In those days, America stood for morality. And a European statesman was right in the assessment, quote, America is great because America is good, unquote. Unfortunately, that was long ago. Since then, America has grown prosperous and prosperity has ruined us. When we had less, Americans went to church on Sunday and generally tried to practice what was taught there. Now we have money for a vacation home where we spend weekends or we take trips in our campers or go golfing at the club. We think we do not need God. Ow, kind of stings. <laughs> kind of stings a little bit. Verse 53, somebody might read in that one. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. Excellent. Thank you, Chad. So here we're seeing fulfillment of prophecy again. And then your seed of application here that I want you to take from this verse, don't assume the years of plenty will continue. Don't assume the years of plenty will continue. What does that mean? It means you need to store up now what you might need later. Am I talking money? Okay, we can talk money. Store now money that you might need later, right? In your working years, hopefully you're setting aside some savings because you're going to need it later in life, presumably, if you live to be that long. Uh, but I'm talking much more about other things, like the Word of God. Did you know that it's described that there could be a famine of the Word of God? A famine of the Word of God, what does that mean? It means you need to store up now because you might not have God's Word readily available later. How could that possibly happen? There are nations right now where having God's Word is, is a criminal offense. In fact, capital crime. They can't have Bibles. So if we were to ever see a day like that, oh my goodness, hopefully we're storing up now, right? Storing up now, whether it's money, the Word of God, or how about this? It says in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. So what should we store up now? Store up love. Love your family. Love your fellow man. <laughs> All right. Uh, be loving. Be free with loving and, and receive loving uh, because there's coming a day when the hearts of many will grow cold, where the love of many will grow cold. Store up now. Verse 54. Somebody mind reading that one? And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph has said, the famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt. There was bread. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. Here we're seeing continued fulfilled prophecy. Uh, but I want you to notice something about this verse. This verse expands the famine. It's not just in Egypt. Where is it described as being here? In all the lands. It's beyond the borders of their their one country. So remember the math we were doing? It's going to have to be bigger numbers. All right. We're going to do some more math in a bit. <laughs> all right. Verse 55. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to do, do. Victor P. Hamilton says, most of the Egyptians are apparently not aware that grain distribution is now in Joseph's hand. Verse 55 tells us that the people sought out Pharaoh, not Joseph. And interestingly, Pharaoh refers to Joseph by his Hebrew name, not his Egyptian name. He says to the crowds, go to Joseph. He does not say, go to Zaphonath Paneah. Mm-hmm. This is another indication that Joseph's second name plays no significant role in the narrative. And then uh, James Montgomery Boyce says, this brings me to my final point, this passage right here that we're looking at. At the end of Genesis 41, we are told how the seven years of plenty were followed by the beginning of the seven years of famine. We see how the people who had undoubtedly been warned by Joseph 
but who, like most people everywhere, had not planned for the future and had instead consumed their abundance from the seven good years, came to Pharaoh crying out for food. Pharaoh's reply was, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. I make this parallel. Our day is one in which the world's rulers had disturbing visions of what the future holds. They have looked into the future and have been given dreams of world famine, runaway population growth, exhaustion of the world's material resources, and nuclear war. Even in the most favored countries and in the most favored times, the produce of the years of plenty does not seem to be enough to go around, and the specter of want looms darkly just around the corner. This is no accident. The nations have forsaken God, and God is bringing them to the brink of despair. But despair is not necessary. Disaster is not predetermined. God's man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come. And just as the great king of Egypt told the starving, worried people of his day to go to Joseph, so does the true king of the universe command men and women everywhere today to go to Jesus. Are you hungry for spiritual things? He is the bread of life. Are you thirsty? Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. In Christ is all the fullness of God. He has invited you to come to him. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, is his promise. The Bible tells us that all who come will receive from him without money and without cost. And so your seat of application that I have for there is come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And then verse 56. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. In verse 57, so all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. By all lands, we can assume that it's that area that's surrounding Egypt, probably Canaan, Syria, and Arabia. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, Egypt was the breadbasket of the world. Under Joseph's management... I tell you, it seemed like two or three bread baskets. <laughs> so now let's jump back into the math. So if a normal year is 10 tons, and we figured out you need 50 tons per year to give you enough to sustain the population of Egypt. But now as we've moved past that discussion, we've found out it's not just Egypt we're keeping alive. We need to keep alive the people of the surrounding nations as well. So no longer is five-fold increase in the food you produce going to be sufficient. You're going to need a lot more. Instead of 10 tons becoming 50 tons in your years of plenty, that's not enough now. They need more than 50. What do they need? Well, I would say you have to at least double it, I'm guessing. So 100. So if your normal year is 10 tons of food, and now you need 10 times that much, a tenfold increase? That's crazy. Is that even possible? Turn to Genesis chapter 26, verse 12. Genesis chapter 26, verse 12. I want to know, is it possible to have a tenfold increase in your grain? What does it say in Genesis chapter 26, 12? If somebody has it, go ahead and read it. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Wait, 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 wait. What? How much? A hundredfold. We need tenfold to sustain Egypt and the surrounding nations. We need a tenfold increase. And we look at that and we go, that's ridiculous. A tenfold increase. Is it even possible? Here we read that God's already done it for Isaac. And it was ten times that much. It was a hundredfold. You're not talking about a God who has limitations on him. 
He can supply what you need and more so. He can make your cup overflow. <laughs> Here's a God and we're going, oh, dear God, I need 10 times more than a normal year. And God says, I got 100 times. Will that do you? <laughs> God can provide what we need and then some. When we talk about this phrase, though, a hundredfold, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9, it's the parable of the sowers. And you guys are all familiar with this parable. You have some, the sower goes out to sow some seeds, and the seed is the word of God. And he sows some of the seeds on the path, and it's hard. And and the birds of the air come, and they pick up the seeds, and they carry it away. And the the seed never takes root, because it never penetrates that hardness. Mm -hmm. And then you have some seeds, they're cast over here. And what do you have over here? It's like rocky soil, right? And there's a little bit of dirt in the cracks of the rock, so some of the seed kind of takes root and kind of sprouts up a little bit, but it's not going to grow very high. And then when the sun comes out, what happens? Those little tiny things, they just die off because there's no root. You can't put down roots. There's only a little bit of dirt there. So some of it's cast over here. And what's over here? Well, you've got the seed that's cast out into the area where there's thorns, plants with thorns. And the plants with the thorns grow up and the thorns choke out the good stuff. And then that seed that sprouted is no good anymore because the thorns choked it out. And what do you have? The last one is the seed on good ground. What is the picture there? The picture there is you've got the hard soil. That's the hard heart. The person that hears the word of God and it just, they don't care. It's, it's in and out. The other seed over here, what is the, what's the rocky soil? They spring up, but they don't have much root. There's no foundation. They're not reading God's word. And all of a sudden when tribulations or difficulties come, they're gone. Over here, what is the thorns? It's the difficulties of life and the worries and the cares of life. And it chokes out the seed and it wants to grow, but it's gone. It's the good soil that gives an increase. And how much does it give? 30, 60, and 100 fold. We can produce 100 fold. And what I'd have there for you, the seed of application, is banish the birds, remove the rocks, throw out the thorn bushes, and let the spirit plow you into good soil. Filling in the blanks, banish the birds. Chase those birds away. Remove the rocks of your heart, that stone heartedness. Remove the rocks, throw out the thorn bushes, and let the spirit plow you into good soil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that we look at this situation. How are we going to feed the world? And it's impossible. But you blessed Joseph and gave him the skills and the know-how to come up with a plan, and you made it work, God, because you're able to make things increase to be more than sufficient. Your grace is more than sufficient. Your love is more than sufficient. You have all we need. Help us, Lord, to share it freely with others. We praise you and thank you for this time and this challenge. Go with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys have a great week.